Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Recovery Talk, a podcast from the Peer Recovery Center of Excellence. I'm your host, Shannon Roberts. Each month, we will be talking with an expert in the field, discussing substance use challenges, resources to assist individuals with a substance use challenge and or their families, and best practices for the delivery of peer recovery support services. This month, we are bringing you another episode filled with conversations with some of our organizational stakeholders. I had the privilege of talking with Brandy of Indiana Association of Peer Recovery Support Services, Bailey of Roanoke Valley Collective Response, and Mike of Association of Recovery High Schools. Get ready to hear from some incredible people doing incredible things. And without further ado, let's get talking. All right, listeners, I am here with Brandy of the Indiana Association for Peer Recovery Support Services and also representing Mental Health America of Indiana. Brandy, welcome. Thank you for being here. No problem. I'm glad to be here. So thanks for inviting me. Yeah. To start off, do you want to tell the folks who are listening a little bit about yourself and the organizations you're representing? Absolutely. Um, my name is Brandy Anderson Willis, and I'm the Peer Development Manager for IPRES, which stands for Indiana Association of Peer Recovery Support Services. It is a pillar of Mental Health America, Indiana, located in Indianapolis. Um, so my, I'm the Peer Development Manager. My main job is to help support peers in the work that they're doing across the state of Indiana and also help organizations implement recovery coaches into their organizations and what that looks like, uh, whether it's in a clinical setting or maybe a criminal justice setting, such as drug court or probation. Um, I just kind of help them figure out what that looks like and what are some of the, and what are some of the ways that they can utilize peer coaches uh, in their organization. Um, this work is really passionate for me. Um, a peer recovery support service is someone who has had lived experience with either mental health issues, criminal justice issues, which that is the case for myself, um, and also substance use or alcohol use dis- uh, disorders. Um, got into this because once I was um, released from incarceration, I ended up spending some time in work release and also in house arrest, and I had three small children. and. My mom and dad were the ones that helped me a lot with that. They took my children for me, so I didn't have to worry about them going into DCS, which is one less barrier that I had to worry about once I was released. Um, I had folks to help me get to work, find a job, um, help me get the papers I needed to get my ID, to get my license uh, reinstated. And while I was incarcerated, there's a lot of women and other folks who don't have that kind of support, and it makes a big deal. So, you know, some... Some some ladies didn't have anyone to take their children from them if, if they were incarcerated. And so their children did go to DCS. And, and that's a big deal. And that's one thing I didn't have to worry about. So after seeing all of the barriers for persons that are reentering from incarceration or just trying to enter into recovery from mental health needs, substance use disorders, I, I realized that there needed to be some other folks here in the community that needed to support them. And so I wanted to be one of those persons. And, and so I started volunteering at an organization called Center for Community Justice in Elkhart, Indiana, and started working with those in jail. And, and, and it just grew from there. So that was about eight years ago. So between now and eight years ago, boy, if you would have asked me if I'd be sitting here 
in the position that I'm in right now, eight years ago, I probably would have said no. So <laughs> that that's one of the reasons why this is big for me. That's amazing. Thanks for sharing those pieces of your story, Brandy. I appreciate that. Sure. sure. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about IPRIS and how they kind of, how they function a little bit more about the nuts and bolts? Absolutely. So IPRIS, again, that stands for Indiana Association of Peer Recovery Support Services. It's such a mouthful. Um, <laughs> but we do a lot of support for recovery coaches throughout the state. So uh, we provide uh, education components for them. Um evidence-based practices. Um, we provide support for them as far as, you know, what does supervision look like? Um, what about being a professional? What are the next steps for training? Um, all of those are some of the things that I help with. Um, we also help advocate uh, for recovery coaches, and we do that across the state, um, whether that means that we are going to have conversations with those in our communities about the work that our peer coaches do throughout the state, or if it's implementing new programs, um, I have the opportunity uh, to implement a new peer group called Alternatives to Suicide. And it's funded by DMHA, supported by Department of Mental Health of America. And what it is, is it's a peer-led group where we all get to come together and talk about whatever is going on with you. And so it's not just suicide, it's anything. Um, we include mm -hmm. suicide just because we understand that through social justices or injustices, oppression, that people are just not treated fairly. And how we all respond to that will be different. You know, people are hurting. And, and there are a lot of persons who are suffering from suicidal ideation that don't even have a mental health condition. So this is one of the new groups that we are implementing in the state of Indiana um, that I have the pleasure to lead along with myself and Carissa Vandebenter. She's my partner in that. And so we're right now we're trying to get peers signed up uh, to be trained to run these peer groups. Um, in order to do these groups, you do have to be a person who has either, you know, had feelings of suicide or thoughts about it. You don't necessarily have to have tempted it, but with it being a peer led group, uh, which means that, you know, mm -hmm. we have that lived experience we understand it's very important so i'm excited that's one of the biggest efforts that ipris is doing right now presently um there are five alternative to suicide groups throughout the state of indiana and i'm located in south bend indiana and i had the pleasure of being one of the first ones to start those groups so i'm excited to help support peers to get some of those uh peer groups started all over that's very cool what what's one of the What's one of the challenges of supporting these efforts across the state? Because I know like having that large of a landscape can have some some challenges associated with it. Oh, yeah. Probably time constraints. <laughs> sure. And that's a lot of it. You know, it's just me. I mean, I'm the pillar that I work for is for peer support. So, you know, I have those who support me, but, you know, it's mainly my responsibility to get out here and make sure that I'm reaching back out to peers if they're having issues with, you know, how to build recovery capital for someone that they're working with or how to get, a, uh, um, how to get over housing barriers or how to manage it or even how to manage self-care. So mm. that, that is a lot, but I, I guess it's so rewarding. Um, 
that it actually brings me more joy. The more organizations that I meet with that are meeting with peers. So it, it does take a lot, though. It takes a lot of organizing, a lot of organizing my time, because I feel like that's one of the biggest barriers for me in doing this work is that sometimes I wish there were like two or three of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that tracks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, but good stuff. Yeah, very good stuff. What what would you say to someone who is in a role similar to yours where they were feeling like, dang, I am the only person out here doing this and I've got a lot of people to serve. How do I do this? Yeah, reach out to your community. And uh, even though there may not be other peer coaches in your organization or that you're working alongside of, hopefully there are peer coaches in your counties or in surrounding uh, areas. And I say reach out to them, network, like building your community, building your network. It's pr- getting those connections made. It's probably one of the biggest pieces of doing this work because those connections and networking not only allows us to know that we're not by ourselves, like there's peers all over that are doing this. And when you hear some of the barriers that, that they're experiencing, then you realize that, oh, I'm not alone. Um, so that's one of the biggest things. Stay connected to your community. Um, and for me, um, self-care is very important. And part of that mm-hmm. self-care may be, you know, talking to others who are doing this work as well and just being able to talk about some of those frustrations. So I've joined a peer group with uh, Healing Communities and they're actually out of New York. And so we do Zoom calls and it's nice to be able to connect with other peers even outside of my state that are doing this work. And that further lets me know that, hey, I'm definitely not alone. There are others out here fighting right along with me. So that's what I nice. would suggest. Very cool. So so you mentioned kind of at the top of this, um, the organizations in the state can, IPRIS will come alongside if they're wanting to integrate or implement peer programming. What is mm-hmm. what does that process look like if I'm an organization wanting to integrate peers? Sure. So we would meet and have a conversation, kind of see what what support are you looking for for your persons that you're serving, um, and then looking at how how we would implement the coaches. You know, I would explain to them kind of what are some of the work that they would be providing, some of the support that they would be doing, um, and then. I would support them all the way from start to finish while helping them uh, put in policies, um, procedures that might have to be updated or changed um, because the peer support role is a lot different than a clinical role. Um, and, and so sometimes organizations aren't, aren't ready for peer coaches yet. And so supervision <clears throat> is another, another big part of it. So I would come in, help you figure out what it looks like to have them alongside your team. We would work on um, paperwork, forms, action plans, those sort of things. And then also I would do a lot of support with supervision. And sometimes I actually help provide the supervision, which means that I travel to that organization no matter where they're at. And it might start off with a, a first meet and greet. And so that I get to really dive in, get to meet the team, see what services they're providing. Um, and then that would be an ongoing thing. I would come in person or we would do Zoom sometimes. Um, but it really mm-hmm. is about me coming in, 
seeing how your organization is structured, seeing where peer coaches can be benefit benefited, and then how are we going to start implementing them, right? What is the role? You know, when your person comes in, your client, you know, who's going to greet them? Is it going to be a recovery coach who may be there to help the system with paperwork? Or what does that look like? So we'll talk about all those things. And then if they don't have proper supervision, um, I would let them know what resources, connect them with the training to make sure that their persons were properly supervised um, to supervise coaches and also provide professionalism training for their coaches. Because even mm-hmm. though they're certified, they're trained and certified, they still need ongoing um, um, support and education. So those are some of the things that I would do um, when working with the organization. Very cool. So the so if I'm an organization in Indiana, do I just go to your website and fill out a request for assistance? And is it that easy? It is that easy. Go to the website, fill out a request. I will get that in an email and then I'll reach back out to you. Um, we also have a lot of info on our Facebook page. Um, and then sometimes people are referred to me just from other persons in the community that have worked with me. And so whatever that looks like, whether it's a phone call or an email, or if you actually go to our IPRIS or MHAI website, either way, you would be able to get in contact with us so that we could start that process and see what it looks like for your organization. That's very cool. Are there, is there any cost associated with this? Nope, no cost. My job, this is my job. Um, so <laughs> I, that's why I talk so much. Uh, I'm always trying <laughs> to help with grants. You know, I'm always looking for new opportunities uh, to make yeah. sure we add, you know, funding to this. Um, but no, there's there's no charge to the organization unless they need direct supervision for their peer because they have no one there that is, you know, eligible that meets the requirements. And then there would be a, a, a charge. It would be a contracted uh, relationship. But other than that, everything else is free. I'm all yours well, to the state of Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, Brandy. It sounds like you kind of sort of love your job. Just a little bit. Just a little <laughs> bit. I really enjoy it. <laughs> it's fun yeah. talking to people. You know, being a part of this recovery community, what I fell in love mm-hmm. with in working with coaches and in doing this work is that I found family. I found people who accepted Mm. me the way I was. They didn't care that I had that felony on my background, right? They still seen that I had something to add to the table. And, you know, isolation is a big reason why people just don't feel like they, they are hopeless. Like there's nothing for them here. And, and so this, this community is we celebrate each other and it's okay that we all have done, you know, maybe not such smart decisions in our past, but it's okay because people realize in this community that we are not what we do, right? Felonies mm-hmm. do not define us. Mental health does not define us. Substances does not define us. We are all humans. And it's mm-hmm. nice to be a part of a community that looks at us like that instead of our, instead of our, of what we did, you know, right. the language yeah. is so important to me. Yeah. Uh, you're so right. I could, I just need to get out of your way and let you keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Be careful because I talk a lot. I go down rabbit trails. So <laughs> I'm thinking of like a hypothetical. 
if you continued this work and like, what would IPRS be doing or what would it look like five, 10 years down the road if you had no limits, like no barriers, like you could, like Brandy could make it anything and everything she wanted. What would that look like? Oh, goodness. Well, my passion for getting into this, I told you guys my story and uh, one of the biggest motivations is working with the prison population, the prison system. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's so many injustices that are there. There's so many good people, right? We're not, we're mm-hmm. not bad just because we didn't make the right decisions or, or we did what we had to do. You know, we never know what the background story is. Um, For sure. But being and having recovery coaches, if I could have a recovery coach in every state, every jail, every prison, and not only have them in the prisons, like we're going now into the prisons and we're training those who are incarcerated as recovery coaches. And then once they come out, now they have a career that they can look forward to. And even while they're still incarcerated, like I'm still providing them professional development. So for me, what it would look like is that we would have coaches all over the place and they were paid better wages. I would make sure that I would advocate for peer support professionals to be paid you know, a, a very good wage, you know, sometimes in some areas, they, they're not getting paid very much. So the persons in your community who are working as peer coaches, they're really doing it because they want to, it's not because they're making lots of money. So those, those are the two things for me, that I hear a lot from our coaches that they wish it had more pay. You know, I wish people could see the value of peers. And so for me, if IPRS could do anything that I wanted it to do, we would have better pay for peers and we would definitely be in every prison in jail. That, that to me would be a big deal. That, yeah. How incredible would that be? And how much change would that bring about for folks? Yeah. Man. And I think it would help with stigma and labels and it would also give hope to people. You know, mm-hmm. when you, yeah. when I got my felony, you know, I worked in the office all my life. You know, I went to school for it. And so when I got my felony, that limited the amount of jobs that I was able to apply for. And no matter how much education, no matter how much skills I had, you know, that felony was was like this red mark, right? Like, yeah. don't touch mm-hmm. her. So, um, mm-hmm. oh, goodness, I'm sorry. I lost my train of thought in this. <laughs> no, you're good. Yeah. Oh, goodness. It, it, I was just gonna say it is like that's that's one of the biggest like injustices to me for folks who have experienced incarceration it's like so much of what the state or you know their probation may re- if they have probation require they also because of their experience can't access it Yep. Right. Like so yep. many programs require quote unquote gainful employment, mm-hmm. but because of the stigma we've created, it's like, well, how the hell am I supposed to get a job in this world? Like in this community? Yeah. Yeah. You want me to stay out of trouble? The job I can get only wants to pay me eight bucks an hour or it only wants yeah. to have to work in a factory. And for some of us, that's great. But 
you know, for others, that might not be what they had in mind for their dream job. And, you know, we shouldn't have to change what we feel would make us happy as far as our careers because of our background, you know? So that's, that's another barrier that I would hope that IPERS could help, you know, get over. Like if I lived in a perfect world, you know, yeah. There's actually a well, uh, re entry. I'm so sorry, Shannon. There's actually a re entry that's happening in South Bend, Indiana, and they uh, they simulate what it's like for someone getting out of prison, and it goes through the first four weeks after being released. So it really shows um, the barriers that persons who are incarcerated um, experience, and we might not always realize it. We say, "Go get a job," but then you know. First, they have to have an ID, birth certificate, an address. They have to have transportation to get to the employment. And then let's talk mm-hmm. about the pay that they have to work or if they even like the jobs that they're doing. So there's a lot of barriers when it comes to it. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Mm. Well, Brandy, I, I do want to be mindful of time, but is there is there anything else you want you want to brag about or shout out? Or maybe let folks know if they're in Indiana, how to get a hold of you or IPRIS or get connected. Absolutely. If you go to IPRIS.org, you connect with us on our website. We also have a Facebook page. Um, it's the whole entire long name, that Indiana Association of Peer Recovery Support Services. But if you type in IPRIS or I-A-P as in Paul, R-S-S, it will pull right up. Um, and, uh, we work closely with Oakland Psychiatric Center here in South Bend, Indiana, who has great peer coaches. So shout out, shout out to Oakland. Um, and if you're needing to get a hold of a peer coach, you can dial five, five, seven, four, five, three, seven, two, seven, seven, eight, and be able to connect to a coach over here in St. Joe County. Very cool. Thanks, Brandy. No problem. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it very much. I enjoyed it. I'm here with Bailey from Roanoke Valley Collective Response. Bailey, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Do you want to tell the listeners and myself a little bit about you and a little bit about the collective? Yes. So my name is Bailey Helgeson. I am the peer recovery coordinator for the Roanoke Valley Collective Response which is here in Roanoke, Virginia. I am a person in long-term recovery myself. And so this work is a passion of mine personally and professionally. I love that. Thanks. How did you get started with the collective response? So I started with the collective response in October. And to kind of share about the really cool stuff we're doing specifically with and for peer recovery specialists. Mm-hmm. I think just love sharing about the organization at large because it's really unique and special. And I love talking about it just in general. So yeah. I'll give you a little bit of history about that because I think it shares that the impact of the work we're doing with my, the peer work that I'm doing. Yeah. So in 2018, the collective response was launched when some folks in our community came together in response to the opioid epidemic and humbly said to themselves, 
this is bigger than our education. This is bigger than our budgets. This is bigger than what we can accomplish individually. Let's come together. Let's collaborate. And the collective response was born. So the collective response is a stakeholder and community-led collaboration based on a collective impact model. And what a collective impact model is a network of community members or organizations or institutions who get together to advance equity by learning, aligning, and integrating their actions to make change, systemic change, population change, community change, whatever it is. Um, a collective impact model typically has a common agenda, shared measurements, mutually reinforcing activities, continuous communication, and a backbone organization, which is what the collective response is. So since 2018, then the pandemic happened, like we all know. So a lot of our needs just grew and the opioid epidemic didn't go anywhere. It just got worse. And so the collective response grew as well. And so now we represent over 11 jurisdictions. We have over 300 members and we have representation from over 120 different organizations from those 11 jurisdictions. And these include representatives from law enforcement, state and local government, the faith community, addiction medicine specialists, transportation and housing experts, prevention reentry programs, the school systems, just every part of the gamut. Because we know that addiction isn't just that one person that's using. It affects the family. It affects the community. And there's a whole lot of things at play um, when someone is suffering. I, I don't like that word, but when someone is experiencing a substance use disorder and we know that the opioid epidemic affected all of these things that I just mentioned. So mm-hmm. that's the response is. It's just, it's a collective response to the opioid epidemic and the mental health crisis that crises that we're facing. And thinking of that collective impact model, the peers network was formed. Because through all of this, we've learned that peers, peer recovery specialists are hugely impactful and make this really big, measurable difference in people's lives across all different things, but in addiction and recovery, especially. So I am a peer recovery specialist and have been practicing, working for a couple of years in a couple different um, areas. And that's, I came on in as the peer recovery coordinator, but there's lots of different really cool things that I do, but I think the peer network is the coolest. And the peer network is thinking of that bigger umbrella, the collective impact model. That's what we use in developing and growing this peer network. So it's any organization that has peers, they are invited to to come represent and come to a monthly lunch where we get to share resources and issues, problems. We get to learn about programs in the area. We just get to come together. Any peer recovery specialist, that's sort of the official name in Virginia. I know everyone has something different, but we are a PRS, peer recovery specialist. Any aspiring peer recovery specialist. So anyone that's sort of interested in this path, it can be complicated. You show up and a whole bunch of people who have been through it already and now are certified get to pass along that information that they learned. Or you show up and you have a client and 
there's some challenges that you just don't really know what to do next. And here's this collective group of people that have resources in their back pocket or have a friend of a friend that you can call and here's the phone number. And that's been really, really amazing. And what's grown from that even more is it's a great database of people when an organization is looking for interns or mm. employees, they know where to come. They know where to, where to pull from. So the peers network is actually an acronym. Peers is an acronym for peers encouraging and empowering recovery services. And that's what we're doing. That's what we're trying to do. And that sort of subsection of the collective response has now grown to over a hundred members. We have a bi-monthly newsletter that goes out that's filled with resources, job opportunities, um, places that are looking for folks to come in and get their 500 hours, which is a, a big part of the certification process here in Virginia. So this trickle down from what started in 2018 is really affecting peers. And these lunches that we have in these newsletters that go out are benefiting the peer, the clients in the community, the programs in the community, it's really been beneficial to to a whole lot of people, kind of more than we initially intended, I think. Um, yeah. And there's some other things we're doing in the peer network, but that's kind of what I'm most excited about and so much growth from that. That's incredible. I love, in most of my conversations with with our stakeholders of the month, it's been so, I think that one of the, the themes that constantly comes up is this, the stuff that's working well or the things that are really incredible are, it's that convening of all the minds, right? Of all the people doing the work and just bringing people together so that we can be doing this bigger and better. Yes. I love that word. That is what the collective response is, is a convener, is a facilitator, because that the five really big parts and important part of a collective impact model, continuous communication and a backbone organization. So this is, that's kind of the crucial part of our job. And the peers network would exist whether I was showing up or not. Mm. So it's important for me to be beneficial. And that has been through this newsletter that goes out in gathering the information and sharing resources. So it's, it's streamlined a little bit because there's enough challenges in our job. <laughs> what are you talking about? I don't <laughs> <laughs> what would, what would you, what would you say has been the biggest challenge in, cause convening, different folks it is it's inherently challenging and especially oh gosh I mean I just think just finding time one and then getting everyone at the table and to start not guiding I don't want to say that but opening space up for discussion and and leading that what's been what's been one of the biggest challenges and then how did you all either you or the the whole group kind of work through that? I think there's um, there's beauty and challenge in it being 
this collaboration and, mm-hmm. and we're not limiting get to to join us. So in the collective response and therefore in the peer network, we have lots of different organizations. We have abstinence-based organizations that are showing up and we have harm reduction folks that are showing up mm-hmm. and we have MAT programs that are showing up. So, and some of those things are opposite and conflicting. Mm-hmm. So that has not been as big of a challenge because I think that the people that started the collective response were wiser than <laughs> some of the rest of us and made it really clear to, to follow this collective impact model and that we are only the conveners and only the facilitators, mm. not anything else. And mm. that's a really significant, important part because it, and this is another challenge, what what gaps in treatment and services are happening across our community and what repetition is happening. And Mm -hmm. so it's important to only be the convener and the facilitator so that everyone gets to show up and share what they're doing individually and not have that be filtered or managed in any way by us. Um, The other challenge has been this was a completely volunteer-based organization up until October of 2022. Mm. So that's beautiful in itself that these very busy people with their own professions and lives were showing up out of the goodness of their hearts, but just didn't necessarily have the manpower that it so clearly deserves and needs. Mm this could be a whole team of just on the peers network, really. Um, and so when I got to show up and have in that position, I think a lot of things benefit, you know, were, were set to benefit because these volunteers got to say, oh my gosh, I've been wanting to put my time into this, this, and this, and I haven't been able to here. And so very mm-hmm. quickly, I got to show up and take over these really brilliant ideas from people that wanted to to do this stuff, like have a monthly lunch and mm-hmm. just couldn't ever behind it. The other thing is we are trying to convene people working all different kinds of schedules and from all different kinds of organizations. And it's difficult, if not impossible to, to, um, get everyone at the table at the same time. And so while that would be lovely and I would love to accommodate everyone's schedule, mm-hmm. it just is, is basically impossible. Right. And so I, the best way and what I've seen benefits from is just keeping it consistent. So there was this idea, you know, to rotate things or change locations or, have it in the evening and, and at lunchtime or, you know, kind of move things around so lots of different people could come. And there's lots of benefits from that. But what I've seen success in is consistency. Let's have it at the same location at the same time mm. on the same Wednesday. And we've seen our numbers grow. The other issue is um, peers and people in this, in human services in general, are so busy and even getting away for an hour at lunch is also next to impossible. So there are 
organizations in our community that have several peers that just haven't gotten to send someone out of the office for over an hour. So a couple months ago, we uh, presented a hybrid option. So you can attend the meeting. We don't get the pizza and the networking <laughs> quite the same, but show sure. up on Zoom and at least share with us your questions or share. One of the best things is just at the beginning of the of the meeting, people sharing what's your organization doing. Like I said, mm-hmm. that is such a, a great way to lower these barriers to understand what what folks are doing out there so that we don't repeat it or that we get creative and okay, wait a second, no one is doing X. Mm-hmm. Someone should show up space. So um we're hoping that the hybrid option it will help and possibly once a quarter or something having a bigger meeting um where maybe it's you know twice a year the this organization can send someone. I've also been just trying to make a personal phone call to organizations that haven't been represented to say, how can we accommodate you? How can we include you? Do you want to just share your flyers and pamphlets with me and I'll bring them to every meeting until someone can come? Um, just trying to keep that constant communication going. Nice. It's it's interesting. The more you talk about this, the more I'm thinking like that's kind of how we at the COE kind of run our organizational stakeholder group, right? Like it's a it's a convening of people doing the work and we just want to create space for them to connect with us and then to also like listen to all the great things and wonderful things they're doing. Um wanna I heard you say this the collective model a number of times. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that and the nuts and bolts of it? Yeah. I think I mentioned the collective impact model because when you're following something like that, it sort of helps to eliminate issues a a bit. Um, And my favorite part about it are those five main sort of goals or what makes something a collective impact model. I know I mentioned them once, but that common agenda. So that's you. People got together to say, Let's do something about the opioid epidemic. And so that's mm-hmm. what we're doing. The shared measurement, we, in, back in 2018, they created um, a blueprint for change. And here's what we want to do. And here's what we need to do. And here's what we're not doing. And here's the barriers so that we can do that. And then just recently, we worked on a white paper so what changed over COVID and how, mm. what's new? Uh-huh. So there's something to follow. There's a way to measure and say, are we really serving the community? Are are we doing what we set out to do? Or are we meeting about meeting and talking about some good stuff and it's not happening? Um, the mutually reinforcing activities, that's another easy way to measure what's going on. And that's beyond just, stakeholders meeting once a month, but communication is a huge part of that. Just for us to be able to understand what everyone is doing is hugely helpful. Continuous communication and a backbone organization are the other two parts of that. And that's that's what hopefully we are set up to do. I think my favorite, favorite part about a collective impact model is all the different people that get to show up. Mm -hmm. I love that long list 
that I included of who shows up, what organizations are there. I really feel like it covers a little bit of everything. And as someone who's experienced addiction, those are all part of my healing journey. Mm-hmm. In order to recover, it's not just let me put down these substances. Transportation and housing are a huge part of my success and my sustained recovery. Mm-hmm. And I see that in my clients and I see that in, in my peers trying to help their clients. Um, and then it, it's sort of this continuum, continuum of care where it starts with prevention. So part of the peers network, one of my favorite things I get to do is go into the schools. And that's because we have a partnership with the city and county schools and with the prevention council. And we get to start all the way at prevention and that continuum, continuum of care goes all the way to um, long-term recovery, crisis intervention. I mean, it's, it really runs the gamut because we know it's, it cannot, it's this circle and, mm-hmm. and not a repetitive kind of way, but in this ongoing journey mm-hmm. that we, keep, we need to keep making sure that all these bases are covered. Yeah. That's so beautiful and so well stated, Bailey. I, I mean, it goes, one of the folks I work with, Chris Kelly, she always brings it back to recovery starts in the community and that's, mm. it starts and lives in the, in the community. And so to, to be pulling together the folks who are working and living in the community to sustain these resources, I mean, that's the way to do it. Mm-hmm. And I love that the collective response had the forethought to include peer recovery specialist because we know what that means is people with lived experience. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's important that people with lived experience are at the table. Uh Nothing for us without us. And we are at the table getting to talk about what really, really is going to help. Yeah. And that, that inherently like speaks to the value of peers, right? I, you know, you've said that a number of times in this conversation. It's like, it's that, it's that hope. It's that, hey, I've been there too. Let's do this together. You know, what do you want your life to look like? All right, let's go figure it out. Yes. And there's so many things that a person with lived experience, it's, well, first, one of my favorite things about a peer is it creates this opportunity where all of that really awful stuff that you went through does not have to be in vain. Mm-hmm. That really awful life is actually a requirement for me to be successful in my job. And I love that. I absolutely love that because there was a long time where I thought that's just some really awful thing that happened and woe is me. And now it empowers me and empowers the next person to, to do the work that they're doing. And there's like little things that I've seen at big tables with a whole bunch of really smart expert people talking about solutions, trying to solve problems. And someone with lived experience just has a little bit more insight. One of my favorite examples of this is at a big meeting with a lot of community members and a lot of first responders who we know are 
at the forefront of this epidemic. They really, really see what's going on. And they were talking about providing services for someone that's experienced an overdose. And they were talking about, you know, we can have this big directory and share all the goodness with with someone that's experienced an overdose or their families or whoever's around, whatever it is. So fired up and excited about it. And another peer said, okay, but the nature of addiction is chaos. All of those printouts that you're going to print out are going to be sitting in the trash can of the hospital emergency room. So why don't we print out a plastic card that, you know, and they had already done this. They've done the work. They've they've done the legwork and they know that what's going to happen with that piece of paper. And so these beautiful connection to care cards were created that are plastic that can be washed that kind of, they say, sticks to the bottom of your shoe, like a piece of gum, you know, Mm -hmm. it's in your pocket. It kind of shows up when you need it the most. And I love those kinds of things. It's like, that's mm-hmm. a re- that's a solution. No, they, no one would have known that unless we were invited to the table. Yeah. What a, what a fantastic way to couch that, to couch experience that. It, yeah. I just love what you said. And I mean, it's, we say it a lot or I hear it a lot that experience equals expertise. And I wholeheartedly to wholeheartedly mm-hmm. believe that, um, but yeah, I love what you said there. Oh, good. Well, thank you. Yeah. Well, I I want to be mindful of time, and I know we're kind of coming towards the end. Is there anything else you want our listeners to know, to hear? I think I would love to share some things that we have in the works and that are happening that I'm really excited about. Yeah, go for it. Um, we are, as a lot of other people are, we're just trying to get revived training to absolutely everyone, anyone and everyone and their brothers. An idea that came before me was people leaving treatment centers are getting revived training, but what about the people that don't know about this? And so we're taking revived trainings to baseball games and farmers markets and um, hopefully the members of the community that didn't know how important this was to have, you know, have the knowledge or, or have, the Narcan in your first aid kit. So I love that. We also have been facilitating um, implementing peers with first responders on overdose calls. And I know there's some other communities, at least in Virginia, that are doing this and doing it really successfully because at least here in Roanoke, we, everyone realized we can't arrest our way out of this, out of overdoses. We can't legislate our way out of this. It's not working. And so in some type of continuum, whether it's a referral or a peer meeting at an overdose call or at the hospital after an overdose call, uh-huh. we're working on um, training first responders to reduce stigma and to connect someone that's experienced an overdose with a peer if they would like one. And I'm really, really excited about that. that wow. Love that. Yeah. Very cool. Well, how so how can folks, you know, maybe they're in Roanoke but and maybe they're not, but they want to connect with you. How can they do that? Well, I would love to share my contact information. My email address is bhelgeson at rvarc.org, and I'll spell that out for you. You can also visit our Backbone Agency's website, which is the Roanoke Valley Allegheny Regional Commission, which is a mouthful, so I will also spell that out for everybody. 
But one great thing is a part of that website is a really large, extensive and updated directory of resources. So anything you can think of is there and I'm here. And so I would love to help anyone that um, would, would like to just talk about programs that are happening in your community or someone that needs some programs. So I'm, I'm here for all of it. Awesome. Thanks, Bailey. All right, listeners, welcome back to another episode. I'm here with Michael of the Association of Recovery Schools. Michael, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Michael, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, well, my name is Mike Derschlag, and I am the director of Peas Academy, uh, which is an acronym actually for Peers Enjoying a Sober Education. Uh, we're the longest running recovery high school in the country, and we've been operating since uh, January of 1989. I started working there in 1995, uh, teaching social studies for about 11 years, and in January of 07 is when I became the director. Um, I joined the Association of Recovery Schools, uh, ARS, in 2015. And I am currently, uh, as of January 1st of this year, currently the board chair. Oh, nice. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about the Association of Recovery High Schools. You know, um, the Association of Recovery High Schools... um, I want to think where I start. It was formed in 2002. And when it first started, um, it was was a... um, it was a combination of both uh, recovery high schools and collegiate recovery programs uh, because both of those at that time were pretty small in its numbers and and knowing that there was um, a good positive connection between recovery high, uh, the high school and into the collegiate recovery programs, mm-hmm. um, the association was formed. Um, and, it, and, it, and it grew um, both in terms of the growth of recovery high schools across the country as well as the collegiate recovery programs. In 2011, um, as both recovery high schools and collegiate recovery programs um, were growing um, to such a number, it was decided that there should be uh, two organizations, uh, Association of Recovery Schools um, and Association of Recovery and Higher Education, Um, just so because when we had our conferences and we had our board meetings, um, this is all history that's passed down to me, so it might be a little bit incorrect, but um, that that, um, when we had our conferences and other and board meetings, you know, Collegiate recovery and um, uh, high school recovery uh, is just two very different things. You know, um, as a recovery high school, we're working with uh, 14, 15 year olds, uh, most often um, under the age of 18, and, and collegiate recovery programs are working over the age of 18. Um, recovery high schools have to provide all the education that a student might have to might have to have for graduation, whereas co- uh, collegiate recovery programs they have the institution of the college or the university to um, provide education, and so they're really focused sp- almost specifically on um, the recovery supports that their their students need. So they're two. They're even though we st- uh, we're still in cl- uh, close partnership with one another. Um, um, they're just two very different separate uh, two different groups that kind of needed its own kind of unique needs um now uh, so yeah that in 2015 is actually when i um uh, i think became part of the association um what i would say about uh, ARS also. Um since i've been a part of PEAS Academy um i would go to a lot of um academic conferences 
um, for my professional training. And they would be good, but there would always seem to be this component missing. And when I would go to... um, like uh, recovery uh, conferences, addiction and recovery conferences, they were good and I learned a lot, but there was always something missing. And when I went to my first com- uh, association recovery schools conference that was before um, 2015, it was as I found my people. Um, I was able to, it was like, I was no longer alone. Um, and I could, I, I got to meet um Leaders across the across the um, country um, who were doing the same thing I was doing, uh, and it allowed me an opportunity to network with them, uh, pick up the phone and start picking their brains about like we're having this here, and or them calling mm-hmm. us and like we're experiencing that. Um, so it's truly, uh, for lack of a better word, a godsend. <laughs> yeah, very cool. So, so when they like the high school group and the um like collegiate level when they split do they still like how connected are they still or do you is it like two separate governing bodies it's two separate boards um although uh Currently, and actually it's neat because yeah, uh, we had our board meeting yesterday, but there is uh, work being made that each um, board, uh, Association of Recovery Schools and ARHE area, um, would have a liaison on the other board. Um, so just as because we are uh, – do so much um, – have so much in common. Uh, right. I mean, the ideal goal, you know, is to have our our students, recovery high school students, move through and and transition to a collegiate recovery program um, because it's just we know that the um, long term results of that and their ongoing recovery because of the peer peer to peer supports that they continue to have is is, is phenomenal. Um, so there's still a lot of we're looking to uh, strengthen those partnerships. We also mm-hmm. for the last I don't know how many years we still have a joint conference. Um, mm-hmm together. Um, and a part of that is because there is such a shared interest. And not only is it uh, the Association of Recovery High Schools and Association of um, Recovery and Higher Education, but also the Association of Alternative Peer Groups. Um, so um, because that is an important component as well. And kind of what we do is kind of this adolescent and young adult emerging adult recovery supports. Um, and uh, Jer- Michael Harris, um, down in North Carolina, or Jay Harris, uh, he he kind of ha- has a term uh, scholastic recovery. Um, that's the first <laughs> time I heard that. I was like, oh yeah, that's kind of what we all do is scholastic yeah. recovery. But we each have our own little area that we partner with quite a bit. Sure, that's very cool. I, and that was honestly one of my. I mean, you kind of already spoke to this, but thinking about the the strength and support it could provide someone who's moving from high school to college and wanting to sustain their recovery and how much, like how much of a conduit these two organizations can provide for students. It is, you know, I know that um, (laughs) I always blame the movie animal house because I think it shifted uh, kind of how we view college and, you know, the college life shifted from like, Oh, this place is a place of higher education to, Oh my gosh, we're a party. Um, And, and, you know, in a lot of our, a lot of our students in high school, they get nervous about, Oh my gosh, what happens when I go Mm -hmm. to college? I had this, I had these ideas of what it would look like and now they have to look differently. I have this, I've built this community of peers, uh, in high school um, with supportive staff, what's going to happen when I get to college? Um, and the more we can connect them to kind of some of the local 
programs here in terms of we, you know, we have a partnership with Augsburg University, their step up program where they have students come in us and our students kind of go over there sometimes to see that they see like, oh my gosh, there is a next step where that doesn't have to be that woohoo party uh, soon. And they can, they, they can see the peers happening or we have them go to Minneapolis Community College and their collegiate recovery program that may look a little different from Augsburg's, uh, but they can say, wow, even on a community college campus, there is this uh, thriving uh, peer um support group for us with uh, mm-hmm. professionals that also can help serve us. Um, and then even with that exposure, they're like, well, gosh, I want to get out of Minnesota because let's be honest, it's single digits right now in Minnesota and temperature wise, <laughs> they may want to go to a warmer climate uh, right, or just right. get out of it. The, they're, like, they're like, hey, there's over 200 or close to 200 collegiate recovery cro- programs across the country. And we can, you know, and with the, I think, close connection between ARS and ARHE, you know, I'm like, oh, I do know some people over at the University of Colorado. I can connect you with the collegiate recovery program or Rutgers or wherever it might be. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we had a young man who um, uh, several years ago, his idea of what um, college was going to be like was, um, you know, basically big time sports that he would get to. Not that he would be playing them, but he would. He had these ideas like, I want to go to football games, I want to go to basketball games, and and sure. and um, Augsburg. Is a Division three school, um, but we had, he ended up going out, going to Texas Tech and getting to experience that one, you know, the collegiate experience that he was hoping to, while still having that safe, supportive recovery community that could he could uh, make his own home. That's awesome. Do you so with the so it makes sense that AHRE is like spread out and national, and they've got this growing network. What does that look like? What does the scope of ARS look like? Uh, we have, uh, currently we have 45 recovery schools as we've kind of, uh, ARS, as we have kind of defined what a recovery high school is and, and mm-hmm. how, and I think it's important to have, um, some standards and you know, not that other schools aren't great, but just like, what is a recovery high school? Um, you know, and it's, it's a school yeah. that anyone can enroll. It's not like, it's not necessarily attached to a treatment center that only those kids who are in the treatment center can go to. It issues a diploma, you know, if there's, so there's a variety, there's a variety of different, um, criteria for what a recovery high school is. Um, and so there's 45 recognized recovery high schools in the state, uh, in the country right now. Um, and it's continuing to grow. Um, you know, unfortunately, um, we've seen, I think the average, uh, lifespan of recovery school had been about nine and a half years, um, because of just kind of the ebb and flow and the, and the small numbers that we usually see. Um, but we're seeing that, average number of years kind of growing. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think we're going to continue to see uh, growth in recovery schools. And I can think of just at the top of my head, um, six emerging recovery high schools right now. Um, You know, I just had a conversation out of the blue with uh, someone from Alaska, and I thought it was already a group from Alaska that I'd already had talked to, but no, it wasn't. It was uh, 80 miles north of where, you know, from Anchorage. And I was like, oh gosh, two recovery schools are opening up in Alaska. How exciting is that? So that's huge. uh, We are growing. Um, Unfortunately, um, and uh, I think one of ARS's goals, Association Recovery Schools goals, I know Mm -hmm. is, is to help support emerging schools. Um, provide the communities that are looking to open up recovery schools um, the support that they might need, the kind of kind of models that have worked nationally, uh, provide them um, kind of uh, models of different legislation that has worked in other um, 
states to kind of help fund the schools. Uh, because currently, you know, if not all young people when they come out of treatment um, are geographically able to attend a recovery high school. And that's that's a problem. You know, um, the traditional public schools um, are not recovery friendly. They're not conducive to continue continuing um, recovery. Um you know, that I think the National Institute of uh, Drug Abuse, NIDA, came out with a study several years ago that said over 97% of high school students, when they return to uh, their high school, are offered drugs the first day. Um, and so what chance do these young people have? Um, and, you know, in Minnesota, we're lucky. I, we have six recovery high schools, but we still don't aren't able to serve the entire state. Um, and it would be wonderful um, if every geographic area had some sort of recovery high school or recovery high school program uh, that could support the young persons in the recovery. Um, I, I, I believe this and I know um, is that if we were tr we really wanted to change the trajectory of this very deadly um, a debilitating disease of substance use disorder, we would really be kind of focusing on the adolescents, the young people, and trying to change their trajectory younger uh, than we are. Um, we because we know that uh, nine out of ten adults who have a diagnosed substance use disorder started when they were um, uh, adolescents. Mm -hmm. And and be, and there really are no you know a young person goes to treatment and there really are no continuing recovery supports out after treatment except your traditional um, community based recovery support groups like AA or NA or Smart Recovery and that's just very difficult because you know young people are spending what six and a half hours a day five days a week uh, in school which are you know if they're not recovery friendly <laughs> right the chances for uh, ongoing success with that is um it's um it's not impossible. Uh, but it makes it very, very difficult. It makes it difficult. And then it also, that's, I mean, that's not everyone's ideal way of support or pathway of recovery. So it it's just an extra right. layer of limitation. Hmm. Yeah. You know, I mean, and I know that, Um. oh, I was, I was just going to say, you know, I mentioned uh, Peace Academy's name is Peers Enjoying a Sober Education. And, and we know that, I mean, I could be the best father in the world. I'm not, but I'm, I'm, I'm okay. But, but I know that the biggest influence on my child's life, or my two children's life, are their peers. And at you know, in mm -hmm. high, you know, high school and middle school, it's the peers who really have the most influence on a young person's life. And if we can provide um, young people um, environments where everybody is kind of tr has the same goal in mind, um, and right. that is to uh, find wellness um, and health when it comes to uh, problematic substance use. I mean, that's rather than, you know, like the, like I mentioned that the woohoo party scene, um, right. we're fighting a lot of, a lot of public um, images out there. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, you mentioned something a little bit earlier in the conversation, you mentioned like you mentioned um, recovery school programming. So out beyond solely recovery high schools, do you also do or does there exist programming in public schools that's recovery focused or? Um, you know, it's difficult. Um, yeah. One, you know, with funding so low, like funding at such a premium in the public school systems. Mm -hmm. You know, we are lucky to see um, a chemical health specialist, a, a licensed alcohol and drug counselor or chemical health specialist, um, even in a, in a district, um, let alone each individual school. I know that there are some public school districts here in Minnesota that have one um, 
chemical health specialist for, to serve the whole district, which really, how do you make those connections? And it's just, yeah. it's, um, it's a bandaid. So the, the, there's, it's, it's very, very difficult. Um, unfortunately in education, just like in many other fields, uh, there is no mandatory training in substance misuse and recovery services. And so you have very well-meaning principals, school psychologists, school social workers, APs, I mean, the list goes on and on, not teachers who just aren't, just don't understand the the, the subtle nuances of what this disease brings. Um, they don't necessarily understand the physiological recovery times that an individual goes through that even after 30 or 90 days of uh, abstinence that their brain is still physiologically recovering or there might be gaps in education mm -hmm. because X, Y, and Z and how do we meet those gaps? Um, and we still live in a very real way, um, and I'll date myself here, and in the Nancy Reagan Just Say No era, that there are administrators, okay, you're coming out of treatment, wonderful, welcome back, find new friends, just say no. <laughs> and and it's, you know, if it was only that easy, we wouldn't have the problems with, that we have today. <laughs> that This may be a bit of a non sequitur, but that you're right, we're not out of it. I, I'm a 32-year-old woman, and a few weeks ago, I was with some friends and I was the designated driver. And so I wasn't drinking. And someone offered me a beverage and I said, oh, no, thanks. I'm not drinking tonight. And they were like, oh, that's no fun. Come on. And I'm like, mm. are you? I'm like, it is 2023 and I am a grown woman. Are you really peer pressuring me right now? Like it was, it, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it is. You know, it's interesting that you bring that up, and I, I, I know from working with the students I've I've worked with all these years, when we talk about it at the Association of Recovery Schools, it's so many of our, our students, and probably both high school students and collegiate, they like, oh my gosh, now that I'm not using, is my life over? Uh, right. And will I still ever have fun? And you know. We used to serve a, uh, an extended care uh, adolescent treatment facility here at, at Pease Academy. And I remember these students would come in and they, you know, like a lot of uh, young people in treatment or probably adults too, they're, you know, they're not happy where they are. They are just looking to be done. Mm -hmm. um, they may not even want to be, um, you know, abstinent when they leave. They just know that they don't want to use like they used to use. Um, sure. And they're like, my life's over. And with their arms. And, and then they all of a sudden they see other young people who are doing everything that a young person would do like hanging out, having fun, bonfires, going driving, you know, listen loud, all, mm -hmm. going to par house parties, all that stuff that everybody does and having a ton of fun and not using, they're like, oh, mm -hmm. oh my gosh. Because, you know, for so many young people, when they start using at a relatively young age, their world of what is fun and how do I socially interact and how do I make friends, it is all wrapped up into substance use. And we have to reteach all of that. Um, and, and some of the new brain science is really cool about these pathways in the brain and, you know, um, that it's just, it's not as easy just to say no, because our brains are going down these well-established path pathways. So right. we just, yeah. we just have to provide them enough time to create new pathways. Exactly. And it is, you know, I, we can dog on culture and, and social norms and stigma, but I'll also add that here in 2023, we're also seeing, and I, I know the sober curious moment movement, and that has come from the adolescent and young communities of like, 
oh, I think there's a different way to do this thing called life and have fun and be with friends. And I, I know like more mocktails are being available. Like it's in places that serve alcohol and we're seeing like sober bars. And so that's been exciting to see. It is exciting to see, you know, some of these mixologists who really know what they're doing are kind of creating some really cool, uh, tasty beverages that have, you know, (laughs) no alcohol at all. Yeah. You don't have to just do water and ginger ale if you (laughs) want to try something that tastes It's a long way from the the Shirley Temples, that's for sure. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Very cool. What, um... I'm jumping around a bit, but I wanted to ask for, because the availability is so sparse and these high schools aren't available to everyone in every geographic region, what, what have you seen work well? Or like, what is this, have you seen families like move across the state so their kid can be part of these programs or... Is it like a boarding school situation? What are folks doing to overcome that? You know, um, one, I, I think uh, the ability for uh, parents to just pick up and move. I mean, we ha- we do see that sometimes, but that's um, uh, a relatively privileged um, place to be. Oh, yeah. That not all mm-hmm. families can um, to, can do that. Um, what I what I, we've done, I think, and I know it's not just me, is that we've made connections with. Um, families in the community, um, different sober houses in the community where they may open up their doors to a needing uh, a family who needs, you know, like a, a child who needs. Um, the APGs are alternative peer groups. Um, and, and I think is this how I was introduced to them. And, and we actually opened uh, Minnesota's first APG alternative peer group two years ago. But it, well, how mm-hmm. I was introduced, I was at a, because we, there are, there is no, adolescence recovery housing or very very little it's all 18 or above right. um which is another problem we could talk forever about it but <laughs> um it may just keeps kids stuck right who may need something more um but i was at a conference and, the, and it was a panel and this young person was talking about um well th- they weren't living at home and they were attending this recovery school in texas and, and in, i think it was in houston and i raised my hand i was like oh I, where do you stay and he's like oh i stay in a, in a one of my um a, someone's like APG's uh, parents' house, someone mm-hmm. in my APG. And I, was, and I kind of was like, well, what's an APG? But there's these alternative peer groups um, that are in a very real way is after-school programming that uses uh, peer recovery specialists. Um, it ha- you know, they, and they have, they have fun. They have, they have groups, recovery groups. They can take them out to the community and do something. They have a lot of fun. Um, and it was just this really interesting model. Um, and I believe in Minnesota, and one of the things I've done is, is like, uh, or have been trying to do in the last couple of years, it's very difficult to open up a recovery high school just because of all the educational needs, um, finding um, supportive uh, school districts, finding the teachers and staffing and the, and the funding, uh, because ed- teach education is expensive. Uh, mm-hmm. But the alternative peer group model is a relatively inexpensive model and is relatively easy to get off and, and running. Um and so that's something that I think uh, for a lot of the areas um, would be a, uh, is a good possibility. And then from there, you know, recovery school can grow out of just like it grew out of in Texas because they're like, gosh, you know, we're doing all this great programming, uh, but what we're not seeing the results we really want to see. Why is that? Oh, because they're at the schools six and a half hours a day, five days a week. Um, uh, it's like going to your bar, uh, favorite bar for 
doing this. Yeah, it's like going to your favorite bar for six and a half hours a day. But don't use. Don't use. Um, <laughs> right? Yeah. <no. laughs> Uh, so I think that th- that is kind of what we try to do. Um, you know, I think it's just to provide the communities as much, um, support as we can. Once, you know, I, a neat thing is happening out in Colorado in the Denver area. Um, they, op- uh, Denver opened up, the, um, um, recovery high school 5820. Um, it's the, um, the, uh, elevation and yeah. they've experienced a lot of success there. And they are now in the process of trying to expand their school into different rural areas of Colorado uh, because they know that not everybody's going to be able to make it to Denver. And so they're looking to expand into other areas, you know, um, to open up schools and with the support of ARS. And the same with, you know, us in Minnesota. It's like we have these really kind of neat models in Minnesota. And how can we work with other communities to create uh create programming in their area um it it saddens me that you know i'll just use like someone in bemidji a a youth in bemidji doesn't have the same opportunities as someone living in minneapolis right yeah Mm. well i i know we're kind of winding down on our time but is there is there anything you want to plug or say that you haven't gotten a chance to say or maybe something you would offer to someone listening who's like, oh, I want to start a recovery high school or I want to get plugged in. Yeah, um, yeah, I would say one is uh, recovery schools actually do work. Um, that We have data and we're collecting data actually show that the efficacy of recovery schools. Um, mm-hmm. I know in, just through my own uh, work at Pease Academy that the Association of Recovery Schools is an amazing support network um, mm-hmm. that the board – and as I'm not saying this just because I um, – serve on it now, but that's one of the reasons why I serve on it because it's just like they provided me so much support in so many mm-hmm. different ways and and were willing to help and provided these standards and, and even and an accreditation that it's really this an amazing professional organization um, that is there to serve the communities. Um, and we end, you know, like I say, call out of the blue yesterday and I ended up talking with a young, uh, a guy from not young, he's um, probably my age that um, maybe even older, you know, f- from Alaska for 45 minutes, just kind of listening and, and providing some ideas. And, you know, and I know those conversations are going to continue that uh, we, we love what we do in our, in our field. And we just want to help others get there too. Um, and I think the la- other message is that maybe for the parents, um, mm-hmm. you're not alone and there is hope. Thanks, Mike. You're welcome. Thank you for connecting with us, listeners. Our goal in sharing stories and information is to provide hope and resources to the field of peer recovery. Please join us again next month on Recovery Talk. You can find our episodes on our website, peerrecoverynow.org. That's peerrecoverynow.org or wherever you find your podcasts. The Peer Recovery Center of Excellence is funded by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration to enhance peer recovery support services by expanding access to training and technical assistance services across the country. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the Department of Health and Human Services, nor does mention of trade names, commercial practices, or organizations imply endorsement by the U.S. government. Talk with you next time.